This season of Lent, we're, uh, we're going back to the Gospel of John, which we had started a while ago. And then we took a break and went into some other things, and we wanted to finish the Gospel of John up. And so uh, the events leading up to Holy Week and just after are what we have left. And so we're going to pick that up. We thought it was appropriate as we're in the season of Lent now. One of the things that might seem a little bit odd to you is that Holy Week has a tendency to be heavy. Because we're right there looking to where Jesus gives up His life for us on the cross. And the rest of Lent we kind of set aside. Maybe you give something up. Maybe you don't even think about it. And then we all get together for a big celebration on Resurrection Sunday. Well, this year the texts that we're going to be going through, they're just simply by what they are, they're a bit heavier. And so the next few Sundays, I hope that you'll continue to join us and you'll take this journey in the season of Lent. And rather than having a faith that's personal and private, you'll have a faith that's deeply personal, but that you're willing to share why you believe what you believe. I think in these Sundays what you're going to find is that your faith in Jesus is much more personal to you than maybe what you'd ever thought about because you realize that what Jesus did for you was so personal. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John 18 today. We're going to start there in just a little bit. What we find out is that uh, Jesus has just been arrested. He's been in the garden with His disciples. Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed Him to the Roman authorities with a kiss. Jesus is taken into custody by the Romans and by the Jewish church leaders. And He's brought to Caiaphas' house, His palace. Caiaphas is a high priest of the Jewish synagogue. Caiaphas considers himself as the one who sits in the judgment seat for God over the Jewish people, even though that we know that he really had no earthly power that had any heavenly authority at all. All of that belonged to Jesus, the man who was about to go on trial. So as we look at this, the Bible gives us the events that happened, but we need to be clear about what's really going on. The disciples had all abandoned Jesus. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, they scattered. They're not going to be seen or heard from again for a while, save two. And the text lets us know that one of them who's unnamed is with Him, and then Peter, the other one, accompanies Him. Peter wanted to stay close. He wanted to hover by Jesus because he wanted to know what was happening. Peter kind of always set himself out as the leader of the disciples, But when things start to heat up for Jesus, Peter gets real cold and real distant real quick. As we go through this passage today, we would not be doing things fairly for ourselves if we didn't put ourselves somehow in the middle and say, who would I be? What would I have done? Where would I have been? How would I have responded? So as we go, don't make this about events that happened to other people a long time ago. Put yourself into the middle of it and say, what would you have done? in the midst of all of this. Starting in Gospel of John, 18th chapter, 12th verse. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. First they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas, the leader of the Jewish people, who should have been the one to first recognize that Jesus was the Son of God, instead sees Him as a rebellion that needs to be put down and quieted. And so he tells the people, it would be good if one guy dies, then all of this is going to get quiet, and we'll be able to have church again the way we've always done church. So they take Jesus to Caiaphas' palace on this hill 
overlooking the temple complex in Jerusalem. It overlooks the whole Kidron Valley. Just below his palace then is the Kidron Valley, and across the way is the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, that tree-lined route that Jesus would have taken that becomes such a significant part of his life and ministry, and certainly this week. And so, since we had the opportunity to see some of these places last year, here's a picture from the courtyard of Caiaphas' palace across the way, up on the top to the Garden of Gethsemane and down the tree-lined route to the Mount of Olives. That is the route that Jesus would have passed just hours before. The second picture, incidentally, is also from Caiaphas' courtyard. This is the place that Judas took his life after betraying Jesus. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. He decided that that clearly wasn't worth what he had actually done. And the Bible says that that he took his life and he killed himself in a field. And this is it. And you can see it from Caiaphas' place. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. It's important to Peter to be near Jesus. Remember, you've got to put yourself into this one, right? It's important for him, this relationship that he had with Jesus. It was important for him to be near Jesus. Even things weren't going the way that he had hoped they'd go. It meant enough for him to be there, but when he had a chance to take a stand for Jesus, he folds, he crumbles, he denies even knowing Him. Pause for a moment and say, when you have an opportunity to take a stand for Jesus, for your faith, for why you go to church on Sunday morning, maybe it's someone who doesn't understand who's going to make fun of you, someone who's going to question you and ridicule you, what's your answer? Do you take a stand for Jesus or like Peter, do you fold? Do you crumble? What do you do? Jumping ahead to verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Why is that important? Because Jesus had told Peter not long ago that Tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Three times you're going to have a chance to take a stand and you're going to say no. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will do that. And the third time, Peter denied him and the rooster crowed. Let's bring this home for a moment for you and I. All of us have people who talk about us once in a while, right? Say things that aren't nice, aren't kind, aren't true. For whatever reason, they think they're going to get a leg up in the world by saying something to to run you down, as though it makes them look better. And we can kind of let it go, even if we don't have very thick skin, when it's people that don't mean much to us. But what happens when it's a friend? What happens when it's someone who's close to you, someone who said, you know what, I got your back, I'll stand with you? What happens when it's somebody who you expect to stand up and say the right thing about you, no matter what it is that someone says to them? What happens when those people 
say things that aren't true and that they don't stand up for us, what happens when we actually hear it? What happens if the situation is such that you're at a table with other people or you're at a gathering or wherever you are and you hear them say something that just isn't true? It hurts a whole lot more when it's someone who you count on and expect more from. I think the worst is when you have someone who you think is close to you who somehow or another thinks they can save their own skin in some ridiculous way and say something like, no, we're not really friends. I don't really know who he or she is. Truth is, I hardly know them. They're really not my kind of person. That hurts. Why would they do that? That stuff cuts deep. There's no amount of thick skin in the world that prevents that wound from getting through. But that's what Peter had just done to Jesus. Not once, but three times. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. These guys, these religious people, the leaders of the church, are actually more concerned about their religious rules than they were about the Son of God who would come to be their Savior and their salvation. And see, that's the problem with religion because we can look at it with them and we can go, wow, did they miss the boat? But what about with us? The, the problem is when we try to keep track of the sins and the faults and the flaws of others, we miss the Savior in our search for the sins of others when what we need to do is be grateful that He's forgiven ours. And what happened with these guys is they were so worried about the religious rules that they missed their Savior, the Son of God, right before them. So they leave Caiaphas' house and they go off to Pilate's house. This is interesting. This is from a different part of uh, the courtyard at Caiaphas's place. These steps are all uh, blocked off with fences. Uh, they lead down to the Kidron Valley, to the old city of David. The temple complex is to the left. Garden of Gethsemane and Mount of Olives that you saw is kind of straight ahead through the, through the valley. These are the steps that Jesus would have walked. They have them boxed off because they're the real steps. They're the ones that haven't been replaced in 2,000 years. To stand there and take a look at those and go, wow, they led him even though he really had nothing to say about it, down those steps on the way to the next trial. So Pilate went outside to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? He didn't want Jesus in his house. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. The Jewish religious leaders don't bring a charge. What they did is they relied on the relationship that they had with Pilate. And they said, well, if he wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have bothered to bring him to you. No charges brought. They simply had a claim of doing evil, which is ridiculous when you think of Jesus. But as I thought about it, I think, you know, we see the same thing in our country today, don't we? It's become a favorite tactic that we use all over the place. Sometimes we call it fake news or distraction stories accusations without charges and the idea of being guilty until destroyed and then we just walk away because no charge needed to be filed rather than innocent until proven guilty we call it collusion or conspiracy theories or a thousand different things that make neat little sound bites on the news that convince you of something that isn't even true and we fall for it all the time I don't care which side of the aisle in the political world you stand on it happens both ways it's a favorite ploy of evil people with evil agendas Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, the Jews couldn't condemn Jesus to death. They had no civil authority. They only had religious authority within the scope of their own people and their own faith. They needed the Romans to put Jesus to death. So they bring him to the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect, appointed by Tiberius as the governor of Samaria and Judea and all of the Jewish people in the area. And this man finally has the occasion to meet Jesus. This guy, he's been hearing all about it. Suddenly, however, rather than just a a gentlemanly gathering between two leaders, he's responsible for deciding the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now I'm a fan of Shakespeare. Over the years I've read every one of his plays, every one of his silence, every one of his poems, some of them a number of times. And I know for a fact that if Shakespeare had written this play, those three words of Pilate would echo through history in a way very different than what they get echoed through history because they're in the Bible. Those three words, Shakespeare would have made a play the world would have talked about forever. What is truth? The man, of, the man in charge of deciding the, the fate of the central character asks him, what is truth? You'd think the words that follow would be something that people listen to forever and ever and ever. What is truth indeed? Who knows it? Who has it? who speaks it or lives it or professes it. And yet the answer is given to us here, and it's quite simple. It's Jesus. He Himself said He came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Not a part of the truth or some of the truth or a version of the truth. The truth. And what is the truth? It is God. And something rung so loudly in the hollow soul of Pilate in that simple answer from Jesus that He walked away from Jesus out to that death-hungry mob outside and He said this, After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. There's a sermon itself in that verse alone. And the finger of that crowd scream, not Barabbas or not this man, but Barabbas, points a finger straight at you and I. Preached about it a few years ago. I'm not going to do it again today. Jesus was held as a prisoner and executed only a few hours later so that a man named Barabbas, a notorious and dangerous criminal, a robber, could be set free back into society. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, but a name meant everything in Jesus' day. A name told a story. It told your story. Parents didn't come upon names lightly. 
And the name Barabbas tells a story as well. It's got two parts, Bar and Abbas. We know in the Bible that God invites us into the kind of relationship that He wants to have with us, the kind of intimate relationship He wants, and He invites us to call Him Abba, which means Father. Bar, we know, is often similar to what we use in Scandinavian languages, in Johnson or Olson or Larson or Hansen. It means son of. Barabbas' name literally meant son of a father. It meant nothing. He was no one. But this guy was everyone. He was you and he was I. Jesus died so that Barabbas could be set free. Jesus died so that you and I could be set free. Here's one guy in the Bible who there's no way to trace him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his father was. But we know who we are. So here's the thing that got me last November when Deidre and I had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land. We went to Jerusalem and one of the places that we got to visit was the house of Caiaphas. We stood out in the outdoor courtyard. It has two main parts. Some of the pictures you saw overlooking the valley below, one of them the stairs from the other part of it. And then we went inside and we descended a stairway that wasn't there 2,000 years ago. But they cut the stairway into the stone so that we could get to the bottom of the cistern below his palace that was used as a jail cell. And we stood in the bottom of that cistern with one hole in the ceiling and there was this dead silence in the group. And with one simple light bulb on and a little light that cut through the window that they had cut in the top so people could see to view it from above, it would have been incredibly cold and dark and frightening. And here there were 50 of us and none of us could speak. We were shoulder to shoulder. There wasn't even room for us. Couldn't speak because I think we're all asking the same question. Was this really the place that Jesus was? Was this really the cell that they kept Him in? during these trials before Caiaphas? Were we standing in the same spot? And when you think about what he must have been thinking and what what was ahead of for him in only the next 24 hours, it was an awful somber moment. On the way in, our group leader had stopped us before we really even understood where we were. And he said, take a picture of this thing. You're going to want to refer to it later. And he had us take a picture of this. Guy that's bound and he's got some rope harness thing over his shoulders and across his chest. And then he's got a halo, so that must be Jesus. That's what I figured when we walked in. So I did what I was told. I took a picture. Went inside and before you actually get to the bottom where the cistern is, you see, nope, go back one. You see this opening in the top that, nope, back one slide, can we? No, yep. There's this opening in the top that's very well lit and there's this hole carved in the rock. Don't really think anything of it because you don't know what it's really about. But then you go down the stairway around the other side and you have this view. That's looking up that thing that was carved out. What we found out was that that picture, that mosaic that they gave us was the way that they lowered Jesus through that opening into that cistern. That was where He was kept awaiting trial. And in order for Jesus to get out, he would have had to put those rope harnesses back on his shoulders to be lifted out again. I tell you what, it took this whole passage and put a very different understanding and a very different meaning on it all for me. It became very personal because I realized for Jesus it was really personal. That cistern was scary and we knew that we could walk out at any time. And of the 50 of us, I don't think any one of us walked out with a dry eye 
One of the things that they did while we were there was they read Psalm 88. If you've read through the Psalms, you've read it. Maybe you've got it partially memorized. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you've never heard of it before. Today it's going to have a very different meaning for you. Written about 500 years before Jesus came on earth. And as we're here in the middle of the season of Lent and we think about what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has gone through for us, I want to walk through Psalm 88 and read it to you. Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before You. Five hundred years before Jesus was even born, this was written. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, which means death. It's a place of the dead. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Imagine standing there realizing 2,000 years ago that was where Jesus was. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. And the Bible includes the word Selah. We don't really know what it means. It doesn't translate. We think it means something like praise. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. He walked in with two of his disciples right behind him. They both disappeared. One denied. One disappeared without being talked about again. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Think about what that means to him tomorrow. In one day, think about him spreading out his hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? And then again, Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He knew well that people got thrown into these cisterns and were forgotten about. They were left alone and ignored. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood. All day long they close in on me together. What's the purpose of a cistern to gather water? They flood it in the rainy season so that they've got water throughout the year. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. His companion shunned him and walked away. Peter denied him. He was truly all alone, standing in this pit while this was being read in silence. We're listening intently. Everybody in the room has tears. And we realized something. We could hear people outside talking. We're all in the cistern and it's silent, save the one voice of one man reading the psalm, but we could hear people outside. We could hear people in the courtyard. Because of that opening in the ceiling, we could hear what was going on outside. And for the first time in my life, this passage came alive in a way that I never would have imagined. You know what happened? The rock, Peter, that had to be there with Jesus, who denied even knowing Jesus in the courtyard, Jesus heard. In the bottom of that pit, He could hear the conversations because we were in the bottom of the pit and we could hear the conversations. 
You think it's hard when a friend dismisses you and says something that isn't kind or isn't true? Imagine what Jesus felt like when the most outspoken, the most robust, the most prideful of all of His disciples, Jesus sits in the bottom of this pit, hands tied, hearing Peter say, Nope, I don't even know Him. Not a friend of mine. I don't even know who the guy is. Denies being a disciple and denies being his friend. And I realize I deny Jesus with my words. I'd love to stand here and tell you that I don't, but I know that I do. I deny Jesus with my actions, with my selfishness, with my sinfulness all the time. I'd like to believe that I don't, but it just isn't true. I do. And I realize He still hears me. He watches me and He knows And I break his heart just like Peter did that day that Jesus was in the pit. So this Lent, we're in these days leading up to Holy Week, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday is such an incredible, wonderful celebration. But the days that you have between now and then, I want to challenge you to something. I want to challenge you to do something that isn't natural, that isn't easy, and that isn't fun. Consider your own sin. Consider the ways that you deny Jesus in your thoughts and words and actions because He sees and hears and watches you too. It is for us that He gave His life and all that He asks in return is that we believe in and live for Him. That's just not too much to ask for. What Jesus does is to literally save us from the worst version of ourselves. And all that's left for us to do is to believe. To accept Him. To say, Jesus, I believe that You are who You are. To take a very small stand and say, I believe. I'm done living my life for me. I'm ready to give my life to You and to live for You. For some of you, maybe you did that a long time ago. For some of you, maybe today is your day. Maybe it's time for you to come back. I'll tell you this, no matter where you are with your relationship with Jesus, there's no better day than today. There's no better time than right now. Because what we've been taught in our world is to keep emotions away, keep your faith private, keep it personal, don't share it with people. You know what? That's not why Jesus died. Jesus died to become very, very real to you. And so whether you are walking with Jesus and have for years or whether you're not even sure you believe in who He is, I'll tell you what, there's no better time than tomorrow today. There's no better time than now because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Maybe you can say, I'm going to walk away feeling a little bit emotional. I want to think about it some more. What guarantee do you have that you're going to wake up? Our prayer folks will be in the four corners of the church. If you need some business to be taken care of between you and God, there's no better time than right now. You can delay it. You can put it off. You can say you'll think about it later, but you're still making a decision. All that Jesus wants you to do is to believe in Him. And then we start living for Him and living for Him is not denying that we know Him. And that just isn't too much to ask from a guy who gave his life for us. Let's pray. God, thank You that You sent Your only Son, Jesus, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We live in a world that values hard work and being able to take care of ourselves and looking out for number one. And number one, we think, is us but we can't save ourselves. All that we can do is die in our sin. You sent Jesus who allowed Himself to be 
lowered into a pit, who endured hearing his beloved disciple tell strangers outside that he didn't even know him. And then he walked himself to his own cross, to his own execution because of how much he loved us. God, that's something we need to take personally. That's something we need to take seriously. And so, God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts. There's not one of us that doesn't have business to take care of with you. There's not one of us that can't grow closer. There's not one of us that that can say that we don't break Jesus' heart just like Peter did. Thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to die for our sins, so that we could know, so that we could know for certain the promise of salvation in Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.